as we begin reading in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. It says, And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Our chronologists tell us that this probably lands right about or maybe even during the Feast of Tabernacles, which if you remember, the the Feast of Tabernacles was a time every year when the Jewish people for seven days would live in little tents, little tabernacles that they would make. And the reason for that was to commemorate or remember the days when they lived in tents as they were led around in the wilderness. And so it's possible that Peter's kind of taken that cue from that. Uh, at any rate, it seems that he doesn't want to come down off the mountain with Jesus, and I can understand that. As we continue to read, he says, He was still speaking, when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them, of John the Baptist. I saw a show a little while back that I stumbled across about Amazon. And it was talking about how Amazon is doing things as they ship products all over the world. They're doing things in a kind of a revolutionary way. And part of the thing that they focused on was the warehouse. There's conveyor belts running all over the place and something's whipping down one conveyor belt and all of a sudden a little arm shoots out and knocks that box down another conveyor belt and it's heading a different direction going off to somewhere else. They organize their warehouse not by topic but by the size of the box. And they're saying that by organizing their warehouse by the size of the package and where it can fit on a shelf, they're able to get so much more product in there and to use their area so much more efficiently than in the past where people would organize them by category. In Amazon's warehouse, one thing on the shelf might have absolutely nothing to do with the next thing on the shelf except they both fit together on a shelf very well while they're in their package. As they interviewed the CEO of Amazon and and showed kind of the splendors of how they do their thing, at the end of the conversation, they asked them, what can we expect to see on the horizon? What do you guys got coming up that we don't know about yet? And the CEO told them that there was no way he was going to share all their secrets there with them in that interview. He said, but I, I will give you a little taste of something. He showed a video of this little drone This drone had a carton underneath it, and it showed this drone going from a a warehouse about 15 miles away to a home and landing on the front doorstep of the home and dropping this little package and then flying away. And he says, it's going to take a few years for us to get all the rules through the, whatever that department is that deals with air safety, travel, and all that kind of stuff. He said, but this is is something that we're working on, and it's coming up in the not-too-distant future. He says, I think he said they they figure they could deliver packages it was either 15 or 30 miles, I think, from their warehouses with those, just with those drones dropping them on your doorstep. And I thought, wow, that was, that was kind of cool. Made you kind of, had, you had a lot of questions too about, you know, drone wrecks and stuff like that. But, <laughs> but uh, 
but it, it was kind of cool. I thought, boy, that's going to be kind of interesting to watch one of those land in your yard or uh, get, look into the future. See Glenn shooting them down. He's practicing back there. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, it kind of it gave you a little, a little bit of anticipation. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is doing for the disciples at this moment and for us as well as we get to look in. Is he's, he's drawing them into an anticipation of the kingdom. And he'd promised that to him, even coming up right before this passage. That's exactly, I think, what the, the transfiguration was of Christ. I look at it and I say, what is going on here? What is, what's happening? Why is he doing this? Why is he taking these three up onto the hill? And the best answer that I can come to is that he is creating within them an anticipation, which is to be shared later with others to help them anticipate the kingdom as well. And so hopefully by the time we get to the end of our study of this passage, that's what will be going on in our heart, is that we will greater anticipate the coming kingdom of Christ because of the glimpse that we get to see of it within this passage. Now as we look at this passage, I'd like to unfold before us four reasons for the transfiguration of Christ. The first reason is that it is a foretaste of the glory of his kingdom. Just as we were talking about with Amazon, showing us a little bit of a taste of what lies in the future, that's what Jesus was doing. He was giving them a little, a little taste, a little picture, a little understanding of what the splendor of his kingdom was going to be like. To see this, I would like you to look back a verse. If we go back into chapter 16, verse 28, it says, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now, He just got done telling the disciples that there's coming a day when the Son of Man is going to come with His angels and sit in judgment on the world. Right after that, He says, and there's some of you here that are not going to die until they get to see that. Maybe not the whole event, but a little glimpse. In all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, that promise that Jesus made is immediately the next thing that's talked about is the transfiguration of Christ. And as those disciples are taken up there, they get to see part of the splendor, the glory, the majesty of Christ's kingdom. They don't see its ultimate fulfillment, but I don't think that's what he was promising. When he promised that they would see the coming of his kingdom, that word kingdom can, can mean a, a geographical area, to it can just mean an example of his authority, or a, a, a part of the splendor, splendor or majesty of his might. So it's, it's not locked into being the exact full fulfillment of his kingdom. And so I think what he's telling them there is he's promising that some of you that are here are going to get to see a little taste of that, a little glimpse of that. And that's exactly what we see happening. Now, what, what is happening is Matthew records it that his, you know, his face shines, his clothes shine. Mark emphasizes that a little bit as well. Luke, as Luke describes it in uh, chapter 9, verses 30 through 32, he puts it this way. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And so... What's recorded for us in Matthew is his face shining and his clothes shining and Mark as well. Uh, Luke defines it a little bit more narrowly and says what that that shining is, and it's the glory of God. It's the radiance of God's glory. In verse 31 there, he talked about the two people standing in the midst of that glory. When he 
pointed to the fact that they woke up, which is a, another detail that Luke adds to the, to the story that Matthew didn't let us in on. He says at first they were asleep, and when they woke up, they saw His glory. So the shining of Christ was glory. John later would testify that, to that in his gospel. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And you know, that's exactly what Jesus is. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. When we see Christ, when we look into these Gospels, and we look into the Word of God, and we learn about Christ, we're seeing a glimpse of the glory of of God. And especially when we look at the transfiguration because he was able to do that before the disciples in a very physical way. Hebrews elaborates on that a little bit. An author of Hebrews writes in chapter 1 long ago and at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Christ is, is the radiance of God's glory. When we think of the sun, the sun is something that shines, that has a great glory given to it by God. When we experience the sun, what do we experience? We experience the radiance of the sun. It's a radiant heat source. So when you're seeing the light of the sun, when you're, when you're enjoying the warmth of shining upon you, and you can feel that warmth, What are you feeling? You're feeling the radiance from that object. And it's the same with God. How do we experience God? It's through His radiance. And what is His radiance? His radiance comes to us in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way in which we experience God. He's the radiance of His glory. So when Jesus is transfigured before them, the disciples are beholding the glory of God. He's giving them a little taste of what the kingdom is going to be like. You know, when we get to the end of the book of Revelation and we have the new heavens and the new earth, the Bible tells us there's not going to be any sun or moon. You know why? Because we're going to be there with Christ and He's going to be the light. We're not going to need any other source of light other than the glory of God itself. This also points back, not just to the end of the Bible, it points back. Remember when Moses was wandering with the children of Israel in the wilderness, God led them by night through a pillar of fire and by day with a pillar of a cloud. And that's exactly what they're under at this point is this bright cloud. It was God's Shekinah glory. Now His glory is shining on Christ. He's saying that Christ is the radiance of my glory. The first purpose of the transfiguration was to give those three disciples a little sampling, a little taste of what the kingdom was going to be like. Well, secondly, it is also a confirmation of His authority. God says, this is my loved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. So God is in this display of glory. He was, is confirming the authority of Christ and telling the, these three apostles, look, you listen to Him. You pay attention to what He's saying. It's, it's, Peter's got to stop tripping over himself here and listen is what he's doing. You know, a lot of times when we get in a confrontation or maybe not a confrontation, an experience that we don't know what to do with, we start talking <laughs> sometimes. And it looks like that's what Peter's doing here. He's like, wow, Lord, this is great for us to be here. Uh, he doesn't want to leave. Uh, how, about I, how about I make you a tent? Can I make you a tent? <laughs> you know? And he's just, I think he's just starting to talk. In fact, uh, Luke points out in his gospel that Peter didn't really know what he was saying. <laughs> he's, just, he's just talking. And so uh, maybe when we get in a thing like that, sometimes it's better for us to be quiet, but 
Some of us, we just, we just don't. We just, we just start talking. We're starting to sort things out, and our mouth is going before our brain catches up, and we're trying to line things up. And that's what Peter appears to be doing at this time. Well, it was time at that time for Peter to just stop. He kind of gets silenced. And God said, this is my son whom I love. He says, listen to him. He establishes his authority. And you know what? Peter got the message. Peter got the message because later when you read in uh, Peter's second epistle, he recalls this event. And this is what he says. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, were, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So notice already the language. Peter says, look, we didn't, these aren't myths. These aren't myths. We were there. And we saw the power, the majesty, the glory of God is the kind of the language he's using here. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my loved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's obviously talking about this event. And we have, notice the conclusion of this, because everything else up to this point has been a descriptive of what happened, right? Now we're going to get a little bit of an interpretation based on the events that happened. So up through verse 18, he's saying, look, this is what happened. We were there. We heard his voice. We saw the glory, the majesty of Christ. We heard God, and he quotes him. And then now here starts the interpretation. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, if we put this in uh, something a little more manageable, Peter simply saying, We were there. This isn't a myth. We were there. We saw it. We heard it. It was awesome. Now, because of that, we better pay attention to what's been given to us in the Word of God. We better listen to this. That's exactly the conclusion that Hebrews came to. Remember, we started at the beginning of chapter 1. Diverse times and diverse ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But now in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son, then when he continues talking about that and comparing him to prophets and angels, you get to chapter 2 and he says this, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. In other words, he's looking back and he says, you know what, God spoke to us through prophets and that was important. But in these last days, he's spoken to us not only through prophets but through his Son. And so with the greatness of God's Son being the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, we better pay attention. And why should we pay attention? Notice it says, lest we drift away from it. So part of it has to do with our nature. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression of disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. He's been focusing on the nature of Christ. He says, boy, we better listen. Because it was declared first by the Lord Himself. And then it was communicated to us by those who heard Him and God bearing witnesses through signs and wonders. We had better pay attention. Exactly the same message that God was given those disciples on that Mount of Transfiguration. They saw the glory 
of God radiating through Jesus Christ. And the conclusion of that is, we better listen. He's in authority. We better pay attention. So we see that the first reason that God gives it to us is just to give those disciples a foretaste, a, a glimpse of the kingdom. The second reason that God does this is to confirm Christ's authority, to, to get their attention, say, you really need to pay attention to this. And, you know, I, th- I really think this probably went a long way because, you know, we have already talked about what those uh, apostles expected to happen with the kingdom. And we talked about how in the passage right leading up to this, Jesus told them that's not how it was going to happen with the kingdom and it was going to bring suffering. And now as they're headed toward that suffering, as they're headed toward the cross and taking up their own crosses and following Christ, they get this glimpse. And this glimpse is going to carry them a long way. I think this is part of what's going to strengthen them and encourage them to, to be faithful to Christ as they're going to go through this suffering is because they've seen a glimpse of the glory that's going to come. In fact, if you were to boil First and Second Peter down into one statement, it would be this. In your suffering, because First Peter, they're looking at suffering from outside the church, the church being persecuted. Second Peter, they're looking at suffering coming from within the church through false teachers. But in the message of both of them, the, the message is basically this. In your suffering, whether from in the church or out, outside of the church, you hang on and be faithful. You want to know why? Because the glory is coming. Because that kingdom is coming. That, in a nutshell, is, the, is first and second Peter both. And where would Peter get that? I think he got part of it on the Mount of Transfiguration here in his experience with Christ. He could hold firmly to the authority of Christ because he had gotten a glimpse And it's that glimpse that he's sharing with us. Also, we see that it was a fulfilling of God's plan. And I don't mean that the event itself was a huge benchmark in fulfilling God's plan. I think it obviously contributed. But what I see unfolding in the process is God working his plan out. Because when we see Moses and Elijah, which I think probably symbolizes the law and the prophets, as you look at them, And you see Moses and Elijah standing there talking with Jesus about what's going on. They're talking about how to fulfill the Father's plan. We go to Luke for a little bit more insight. And we saw Luke pointed out that Moses and Elijah were talking with Christ about His coming departure and His resurrection. And so they're talking about the things that Christ is about to fulfill as He carries out the plans of His Father. And so they're kind of having a... A holy huddle here, if you want to think of it that way. And they're talking about how these things are going to be carried out and probably the timing. You know, Jesus is often mentioning that, nope, it's not my time yet, not my time yet. And then all of a sudden we're going to see him say, you know, it's time to go to Jerusalem. It's time. And then he's going to tell Judas, who's going to betray him, hey, Judas, it's time. Do what you're going to do. And he's going to go out to the garden where they're going to get him. And he'll surrender himself. And he'll fulfill the Father's plan. But that's exactly what Moses and Elijah are talking to him about. It's also what kind of causes the, the apostles a little bit of confusion because they ask him and they say, well, what not Elijah supposed to come first? And that's not just from tradition. That's from Scripture. If you look in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 4, verses, uh, I think it's 5 and 6, it says that Elijah is going to come and make straight the path of the Messiah. And so they ask, well, isn't Elijah supposed to come? Where is Elijah? Because John the Baptist had been preaching and people asked him who he was. In fact, he was specifically asked, are you Elijah? And John the Baptist said, no, I'm not Elijah. And so it, gets, it can get a little confusing about John the Baptist. Who is he? Well, Jesus answers that question. Now, we've, we've already seen from earlier passages. 
as we study the book of Matthew, that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, and he had many similarities with Elijah. But Jesus answers it this way. He says, Elijah has first come. He says, if it will be accepted. And that would be, they clearly understood it by the end to be John the Baptist, because Jesus said they did with him whatever they will. They, they, they killed him. And Jesus also made the statement. He says, Elijah will restore all things. But if they're willing, Elijah is John the Baptist. What is he saying? What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means that Jesus is saying John the Baptist did the work of Elijah. If Israel would have been ready and accepted their Messiah, Elijah's part could be fulfilled by John the Baptist. But God, in his infinite knowledge, knows that Israel is not going to accept the Christ at this time. So he did not send Elijah. He sent John the Baptist. We are going to see Elijah. Jesus says Elijah will restore all things. If you read in the book of Revelation, you get up to chapter 11, you'll find that there's two witnesses that God puts on the earth before the return of Christ. And these two witnesses have amazing abilities. Part of the abilities of these witnesses is they're going to be able to withhold rain. They're going to be able to cause the rain to stop on the earth to fulfill the purposes of God to get people's attention. Well, who does that remind you of? Elijah. That's exactly what he did with King Ahab and Jezebel. The second thing that they're able to do is they're able to cause water to turn to blood. Well, that was one of the plagues of Egypt that was conducted by Moses. So the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, though they're not mentioned by name, it does seem most obvious that they are Moses and Elijah. So Elijah is going to come and do his footwork for the Messiah. He is going to come and restore all things, prepare the way of the Lord, but it's not at the Christ's first coming, it's at Christ's second coming. That's when he's going to do his work. John the Baptist was fulfilling in the spirit of Elijah a similar mission in preparing the way for the Lord to come for his first coming. If God in his infinite knowledge would have known that Israel would have accepted the Messiah, if that would have been his plan, then he would have sent Elijah at that time. But since God in his infinite knowledge and plan knew that Israel would reject the Messiah, he did not send Elijah, his days yet coming, he sent John the Baptist in the spirit of Elijah. And so the, the disciples, they were confused about the unfolding of these events as well. How is the purpose of God going to unfold? And Jesus just kind of took a moment and clarified that for a little bit. But all these things speak to this one truth that is echoed in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. It says, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. As he takes the blame for the death of Christ, he puts it squarely on the people that in their own willful decision, acted to put Christ on the cross. But he said, you know what? In doing all of that, you were only fulfilling the divine plan of God. That in his infinite wisdom, he drew up before the foundations of the world. Also, lastly, we see that it was a step in their own transformation. Talking about their own being the disciples or the apostles here. That this was a step in their own personal growth. We've already mentioned that how important this event would have been later on as they're going through suffering for them to realize and know that the glory's coming. We've seen a glimpse of it. It's going to be awesome. We can hang on. The word transfigured that's used in the passage here about Jesus, that he was transfigured before them. It's a Greek word, metamorpho, which obviously we get our word metamorphosis from. Most commonly what comes to our mind when we think of the word metamorphosis is caterpillar, goes into cocoon, comes out a butterfly. Jesus, it says, was metamorphosized 
before them. He was, he was transformed. He was transfigured. He was changed before them. It's the same word that's used for us in Romans where it tells us to not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed, not an external change, conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. As we consider this idea, as Jesus takes these disciples up onto the Mount of Transfiguration before him and allows them for the whole purpose of seeing the glory of God radiating off of Christ, a necessary conclusion or outcome from that event has to be their own transformation. Because of their beholding His glory, their glory is going to increase. I'm going to go to a different passage to explain this more clearly. As we go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 3, and we're going to look at a lengthy passage here. It's looking back to the Old Testament, and it's comparing the Old Covenant, which would pass away, with the New Covenant, which would be permanent. And notice, starting in verse 7, it says, Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. All right, so think about that so far. What's it saying? If this old, if the ministry of death, it's talking about the law, because the law shows us our sin, which leads to our death, which is the penalty for the law. It's, it's those letters carved in stone, like when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments written in stone. And so he's referring to that old covenant, that Old Testament. And he says, if that was glorious, and it was, it was glorious. Because when Moses went up onto the mountain to be with God, and God gave him the commandments of stone, and Moses came back down off of the mountain, Moses radiated the glory of God. From being in the presence of God for 40 days, he, he absorbed that and he just radiated the glory of God. It freaked out the Israelites. So the Israelites said, well, we can't stand this. Cover it up. And so Moses, when he would get before God and, then, and absorb the, the glory of God to where he himself would radiate it when he came down off the mountain, then he would put on a veil and cover it up so that they wouldn't be so scared. Now, that's what it's talking about. Now it says, if that was glorious, and it was, then it says, will not, in verse 8, the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. He's saying if the glory that brought our condemnation was glorious, then surely the ministry that brings our righteousness surpasses it in glory. It's so much more glorious. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. So he's saying, look, in comparison... There is no comparison. The glory in the new covenant in Christ is so much more glorious than the old one that the glory fades on the old one. We, we don't even recognize it as being glorious because of the comparison. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we are very bold. In other words, not like Moses putting a veil over his face. We're coming right out with it. We're out in the open. We want you to see this glory. We're being bold with this new glory. We're not covering it up. He says, not like Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. That's why they had him. They wanted the glory of God covered up. Their minds were, their hearts, their minds were too hard. And, and so they had Moses put that veil on. 
And then that lasts even to this day, he says. So for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. In Christ, the veil is taken away. When they come to Christ, the veil is removed. The light turns on. They, can, they get it. They will finally understand. But now, notice what it says. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. You can't make a rule or a law or a guideline that can create this. And we all, we all, talking about Christians, because look at the next line, with unveiled faces. Remember, it says that veil is taken away when we turn to Christ. So we all, with unveiled face, beholding the Lord of glory, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So he's saying, look, all of us with veil removed because we've turned to Christ, now we all, as we behold the glory that is in Christ, our glory increases a little by little. Step by step, from glory into glory. But our glory increases little by little as we behold the glory of Christ. So when we look at that transfiguration, the disciples are there with Jesus. He purposely brings them along. He could have went up on the mountain and talked to Moses and Elijah by himself. But he didn't do that. A lot of times he went up on a mountain or off by himself to spend time in prayer with the Father, and he didn't bring disciples with. Why bring them? Every time he records of bringing them, they fall asleep anyway, even this time. He does it by himself lots of times. This time he purposely brings these three up there with them so that they could behold the glory. And as they behold his glory, their glory increases little by little into the same image. That's talking about us that, that's how we grow. How do we grow in Christ? We behold His glory. We get out the Word of God directed by the Spirit of God. We, we get into it and we behold the glory of Christ. We see the awesome, awesome nature of Jesus Christ and we see the glory of God in that. And as we behold that, we are being changed. We're being changed, metamorphosized from the inside out into something that was an ugly old caterpillar into something beautiful like a butterfly. We're being Change little by little into the same image. In other words, the same image that we're beholding, the same glory that we're beholding. In other words, plain and simple, we're just being made more and more like Christ. Well, as we look at the passage this morning, these same reasons come to bear. We see a foretaste of the glory of God's kingdom. We see the authority of Christ confirmed. We see the fulfilling of God's plan And we need to experience a transformation within our own hearts and lives. And we get that through beholding, looking, and continuing to look. That's a big part of why we're here every Sunday morning. Is because we need to keep looking. And the more we look, the more we're going to be transformed. The more more steps we're going to take toward the image of Christ as we increase in glory.